HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides, your host. Now, did you know that me, Erica Wides, your host, that I, for several years in my youth, I had an ongoing imaginary relationship. Did you ever know about this, about my friend in my head? My ongoing imaginary relationship with an actual person although the fictional version of her, I guess. Yeah, it was Laura Ingalls. Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I know, I've talked about this before. You know, the Little House on the Prairie books? You know, the books, not the show, the books, although I loved the show. But the books were really like, you know, the colonial shizzle in my little universe back then. Mm-hmm. Laura and I were like imaginary BFFs. She was my sister from another century, because she was born in February of 1867, and I was born in November of 1967. And in 1976, during the Bicentennial and the years surrounding it, she used to come and visit me in my head and hang out in the 20th century with me and have me explain things to her. Things like lights and electricity and cars and shake and bake and Girl Scout cookies and the Vietnam War. And yeah, I've talked about this before, but I, I have a reason. Laura really is my reason behind everything. Now, Laura and I would hang out, you know, in my imagination, and we'd wear our matching calico dresses and sunbonnets, and we would run around in the woods behind my house getting dirty and sweaty and acting 
intentionally and distinctly ungirly and unladylike, quite intentionally, since we both had older sisters who preferred to be clean and quiet and good and nice. And that drove both of us crazy. Except that then her sister went blind and mine became a lesbian in college, although only temporarily because then she married a landscape architect and became a therapist. And it's not anymore. But we had a good thing going, Laura and I. She, she was my pal. You know, she was like a constant. She was my steady. And I guess we outgrew each other a few years later because, you know, I went off to seventh grade and junior high where it's kind of embarrassing at that point to have an imaginary friend. And she went off and married Almanzo Wilder, who we'll get to shortly. But it was okay. You know, it was time. Our relationship ran its course and it was time. But those books, man, those books... They really impacted me. I've brought them up before, but the way, in the way that I think about food and survival and American history and American eating and cuisine and just tenacity and resilience, you know, they went across the country in wagons, right? There were no roads. Wagons, yeah. You know, we complain about like being on a plane for six hours to get to LA, but imagine taking three months sitting in a wagon behind some horse. In freezing weather, not in, not enjoyable. So the books, like I said, really impacted me. And so every few years, I reread one or two of them. I just pick them up and I read them again. And because originally I had the whole set, it was like a boxed set. And I always thought that I had read the entire set in the past, like back in my tens, not my teens, my tens, but. It turns out, actually, that I had skipped one. For whatever reason, I don't know. I skipped the one called Farmer Boy, which is all about the childhood, not of Laura, obviously, but of her future husband, the aforementioned Almanzo Wilder. Now, Almanzo Wilder grew up on a farm in upstate New York in the 1860s and then later moved to Minnesota as a teen and then pushed further west into the Dakota Territory to stake his claim in Desmet. South Dakota, which is, of course, where he meets Laura, his bride-to-be. But Laura grew up traveling around the Midwest, first Wisconsin, and then Minnesota, and then Kansas and Missouri, and then the Dakotas, where they met. So I guess Farmer Boy, well, obviously, not I guess, you know, was a book where he dictated all his stories to her, and then she made them into a memoir in the same style as the other books, and that became Farmer Boy. Now, why I skipped Farmer Boy way back when, I don't know for sure, but undoubtedly it was because it was about him, not her. It was about a boy. I didn't care. I wanted to read about her, but boy, what a mistake that turned out to be, because Farmer Boy actually happens to be probably the most interesting book in the whole series, and I just read it. Like 40 years later, I'm reading it now while I finished it. Because it only takes like a day to read one of them because they're written for, you know, nine-year-olds. So it turns out that the book, Farmer Boy, the actual book from the set, had somehow made the move to Florida with my mom 20 years ago with some of my other old books. And I didn't realize this until I went down to visit her and it had been sitting on the shelf in her condo in Florida all these years. And so when I was down there last month, I picked it up and I started reading it. And it turns out that Farmer Boy is all about food. Like the entire book is basically all about growing food and raising food and milking food and harvesting and hauling and storing ice to preserve it with and breaking in oxen to train them to plow fields to grow food in. And it has a vivid 
beautifully written description of the family's meals, which were huge and plentiful because Almanzo's father was a pretty successful farmer, actually. And especially the descriptions of the breakfasts. Now, their breakfasts would start out with oatmeal and then move on to pancakes and biscuits and preserves and cooked fruit and ham and fried apples with onions. And then they'd finish up breakfast with a big wedge of pie. That was just breakfast. Now, you can totally trace the roots of that 3,000-calorie typical American colonial-era breakfast to the Denny's Grand Slam breakfast or the IHOP approach now, tracing those roots right back to the Wilder family breakfast table. Only the Wilders were doing backbreaking, endless physical labor every single day from before sunrise until after dark. And Americans today aren't quite exerting themselves the same way. We like to think of ourselves still as that hardy, hardworking pioneer stock that just a few of us are descended from. But you know what? Really? Mm, we're not. So that 3,000 calorie Denny's Grand Slam breakfast, you think, well, I'm eating it because my great great grandpa ate it back on the prairie. Yeah, you're not kidding anyone. But where am I going with all of this? Because, you know, it takes me a while sometimes. Well, it's nearly October. Tomorrow is October. And you know what that means, right? Yes, it means Halloween is coming. And yes, the leaves are turning beautiful colors. And yes, the days are growing shorter. And yes, it's really just the start of the Christmas season, actually. But what it actually really and truly means is that it's pumpkin spice season again. And this year, Foodiness Inc. and its evil cousins, Junk Food Inc., have been dipping their magic seasoning wands and their fancy flavoring spoons deep into the cauldron of chemically synthesized pumpkin spice and drizzling their autumnal artificiality on just about everything. Now, if you thought last year was the year of pumpkin spice, oh no, my friend, we've only just begun to spice. Because this year may be the, the apogee, the apex, the pumpkin perigee, the breaking point. We may have hit peak pumpkin spice, that is. We'll never hit peak pumpkin because there's rarely any pumpkin in pumpkin spice, as we all know. No, what we've hit is the peak of foodiness fakeouts pumpkin spice flavor. All cloves and cinnamon and artificial molasses flavoring with a dash of dark orange color and voila! Pumpkin spice or pumpkin pie spice flavor, not actually pumpkin. Now, remember last year, right around this time, I did an episode on this very subject. But I had to bring it back because even though I thought I'd exhausted it, slayed that dragon, milked that pumpkin spice flavored cow. No. This year, even more pumpkin spice flavored stuff has rained down upon us like a plague, like the swarm of locusts that wiped out the Ingalls wheat crop that one year in Minnesota and almost pushed them over the edge into poverty. Pumpkin spice is upon us and there's nowhere to run. We're going to take a short break.
You're listening to Poor Eyes by The Hollows. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hi, this is Chad Pagano, former Army sniper, host of the Wild Game Domain, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network.org. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Eric Weitz. So back to Almanzo Wilder, a.k.a. Farmer Boy. So there's Almanzo with his goofy name. Laura actually wound up calling him Manly, which is kind of even more embarrassing. Imho. So here's Almanzo growing up in upstate New York in the 1860s on his family farm. And they grow all kinds of stuff like potatoes and beans and apples and hay and turnips and, you know, whatever. Farmy stuff, cooler northern climate farmy stuff. And they grow pumpkins. Of course, they grow pumpkins because it's a chilly northern climate, like I just said, which is perfect for the hard shell squashes like pumpkins. I think they actually grow pretty well in warm places, too. But I think of pumpkins as more of a northern crop. Now, pumpkins were a really important garden crop for people back then because they provided very valuable vitamin A and beta carotene and food for the family and food for the animals and the pumpkins would keep in the cellar for months and months and months without spoiling. Very important before refrigeration. Now, these were sugar pumpkins or cheese pumpkins, the ones that taste good, although not super sweet like a butternut squash, which we think of now as kind of that pumpkin-y flavor, but those are much more modern cultivars. No, they tasted good. They didn't taste awful and watery like, you know, jack-o'-lantern, like decorative carving pumpkins, which tastes terrible if you've ever tried to eat one of those. But they were good, and the seeds provided lots of protein and oil for them also. And the pumpkin, like I said, was full of beta-carotene and vitamin A and very nutritious and good for everybody. And that's that. It was an important food crop, grown, stored, preserved, and eaten as pumpkin itself. That's how they would eat it. Pumpkin, like as a vegetable or as a fruit or as a pie filling. The pumpkin. You see where I'm going with this thing? You see what I'm getting at? So Almanzo decides in the book that he, and I guess in real life too, I mean it's autobiographical, right, that he's going to raise a prize pumpkin for the state fair one fall, the New York State Fair. And so his pa gives him the okay to do so and gives him a little patch of land and gives him a very, very special secret trick for ensuring that his pumpkin grows to a championship size. He shows Almanzo how to milk feed his pumpkin. Yeah, milk feed. So they plant the pumpkin patch and then he selects one small green pumpkin that looks promising, like it has the 
innate capacity to become enormous. And he cuts a slit in the main stem of that pumpkin, wraps a fabric strip around it to act like a wick, digs a little well underneath that spot in the stem, and places a bowl of milk in the well. And then he sets the wrapped end of the fabric into the little bowl of milk, which acts like a wick, which the pumpkin sucks up every day and eats the milk, and then the milk gets refilled daily. Really? I mean, seriously, really, a milk-fed pumpkin? Like like a veal calf or something? Like a carnivorous plant? Like Audrey II in Little Shop of Horrors? Only not blood-fed, but milk-fed? Really? A milk-fed plant, Laura? Seriously? We didn't talk about this back in 1977. This never came up. So what did I do? I Googled it, which is something I would love to try to explain now to Laura explain googling to someone from the 1860s it turns out that the milk fed pumpkin is somewhat of a myth it's like something on snopes urban legend but this would be rural legend now i'm sure almanzo did it because you can't make that shit up and it's a whole chapter in the book but apparently it's pointless because pumpkins um not carnivores can't suck up nutrients from milk they absorb Light from the sun, photosynthesis, and water from the ground, and nutrients from the soil. But mm, they're not slurping down milk like a bunch of toddlers, okay? So it turns out that it's not true. It doesn't work. And it was just a fluke that this particular pumpkin got so big. And so he grew a really big pumpkin. That's all he did. And then he brought it to the state fair where he was all stressed out and terrified that the judges would think he cheated or used unnatural methods for growing his steroid all pumped up pumpkin. Now, if Almanzo only knew what sort of horrors were coming down the agricultural pipeline a few short decades later, oy vey. I mean, milk seems ridiculously benign compared to, let's say, GMOs, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, chemical industrial farming nightmares that were just beginning at the bend of the next century. And of course, he does wind up winning the blue ribbon at the fair for his pumpkin after all. Otherwise, why write the chapter? Oh, sorry, by the way, if I just spoiled the suspense for everyone who was planning on reading the book now. Uh, I told you he won. Sorry about that. Oh, well. Oh, and also they all die of typhoid, too, at the end. <laughs> just kidding. So he takes his prize-winning pumpkin home, and his mom cuts it up and cooks it down into pumpkin pulp and cans it for the long winter to come, and then but, you know, not in cans and jars, because that's what canning means. And then they eat it all winter in pies and also as just a cooked vegetable. And they feed some of it raw to the pigs and the cows, too, because they like pumpkin also, unspiced. And it was probably one of their only sources, like I said, of vitamin A and beta carotene all winter prevented malnutrition in the same way that cabbages and sauerkraut provided vitamin C in Eastern and Northern America and Europe during the long, cold, pre-citrus, pre-refrigerated shipping winters of not that long ago, a hundred-odd years ago. This is what people had to do. And later in the series, another book called The Long Winter details Laura's family's ordeal in the winter of 1880 to 1881. So different book, The Long Winter. Sorry, jumped there very abruptly. Abruptly. So Laura's family winds up out in Dakota, which is what it was just called, the, just Dakota, 
1881, which was and still remains the worst documented winter in history, by the way, in the Dakotas, where it started to snow in September and it didn't stop snowing until April. And the snow was as high as the roofs and everybody in the town almost starved to death because of it in this book, hence the name The Long Winter. So when they realize in The Long Winter early on that winter has come like two months early, they all scurry out to the garden on the freezing morning with snow coming down and they hurry to pull up all the potatoes and the carrots and the turnips way, way, way early and unfortunately pick all the pumpkins, which happen to still be green. Now Ma, a.k.a. Caroline Ingalls, in her clever, practical, prairie wife way, takes the green pumpkins and makes green pumpkin preserves... And then a green pumpkin pie as a surprise for Pa, who's out trying to save the farm from the imminent blizzard doom. You see how industrious they were? Look at that. She used her green pumpkins in a very smart, industrious way. Instead of just giving up and going to, you know, Costco and buying some. But because it was a green pumpkin, she did have to add a lot of sugar and typical pumpkin pie spices to the mix because, you know, that pie hadn't or that pumpkin hadn't developed its natural sweetness or turned bright orange yet. And then Pa eats the pie and he thinks it's apple pie. And he's so shocked because there are no apple trees on the prairie because there are no trees on the prairie. It's the prairie. But no, Pa, it's green pumpkin and ma's a genius and big warm fuzzy yucks ensue all around and everybody's happy that they're inside eating pie together and not dead from typhoid that comes later well no not really starvation and almost freezing to death come later but typhoid i just made that up to keep you on your toes but my point is they ate that pumpkin as a vegetable or as a fruit whatever it is, as a preserve and a conserve and a pie filling and as an animal feed, they probably got pretty sick of it too, but they didn't really have much choice. It was their food. And by the end of the winter, that long winter where they almost all died, all they had left to eat was cornmeal, mush, and molasses for every meal every day until the spring, until some food came up out of the ground. I mean, that really would have sucked. If I eat like the same thing more than two days in a row, I start to get cranky. Cornmeal, mush, and molasses every meal every day for the last two months of winter. Now, I bet that on that exact spot where they were miserably eating that 900th bowl of cornmeal mush, there's now probably a Walmart mega market today or a Greatland Target or a gigantic Costco. And the shelves are just exploding with pumpkin spice flavored coffee creamer and pumpkin spice flavored Oreos and pumpkin spice flavored pancake mix and pumpkin spice flavored syrup and pumpkin spice flavored diet fat-free yogurt and pumpkin spice flavored dog treats and pumpkin spice flavored shampoo and the one I just heard about pumpkin spice flavored for loco. I don't even really know what that shit is. Because we have a pretty short memory here in the land of the Grand Slam breakfast, and we forget that pumpkin isn't pumpkin spice. It's like in merely 100 years, a blink of an eye in human history, we've gone from eating the pumpkin with maybe a little sugar and spice added, if we had any, and just accepting the pumpkininess of it, to eating just the sugar and the spices associated with it and pretending that it's pumpkin. It's like the Beatlemania of vegetables or fruit, technically. Not the real pumpkin, but an incredible simulation. Now, if you have no idea what Beatlemania is, get Laura Ingalls to Google it for you because I think she just teleported back to the prairie with my iPad under her skirt. 
But haha, Laura, jokes on you because there's no Wi-Fi in Desmet, South Dakota in the 1870s. So please bring my iPad back. So we all start to think, oh, it's fall. The air is crisp. The days are shorter. The leaves are turning. Time for pumpkin spice. It's like during the Depression and World War II, when they were rationing food, there was a recipe for mock apple pie going around. Very popular recipe for mock apple pie made from Ritz crackers and margarine and sugar and cinnamon and all mashed up with canned apple juice and baked in a crust. And people couldn't tell the difference between that and real apple pie, apparently. And that was 70 years ago. People were still eating real food 70 years ago. But we went from planting and growing and milk feeding and eating the pumpkins or the apples or the carrots or whatever to creating a set of associated flavors and textures that emulate or suggest the original base food, but barely touch it or come in contact with it. We've created these sort of simulated experiences of certain foods without ever contacting the real food. Most pumpkin spice flavored stuff never even spent time in the same room as an actual pumpkin. Even I, if I'm making pumpkin pie or pumpkin cake or pumpkin soup, reach for the canned pumpkin. I've never cooked a whole raw pumpkin down for a pie. Oh, yeah, wait, actually, yeah, I have. I forgot. I've cooked cheese pumpkins for ravioli filling and for soup. So forget that last statement. I've done it. I'm a chef. We do it. So what would happen if that little Walmart on the prairie with its shelves and rows and bins of pumpkin spice flavored foodiness suddenly, like, I don't know, burned down or the Great Land Target blew away in a blizzard or a tornado hit it? And the next spring, someone was picking through the rubble and they came upon a packet of pumpkin seeds and planted them in the ground and poured some milk over them. And in October, a giant patch of pumpkin suddenly grew where once was just acres of retail plenty. What would people do with them? How would they know how to deal with the pumpkins? Would they know how? Would they even eat them? I mean, I guess if all the Taco Bells and Wendy's and IHOPs had also blown up in the apocalypse too and the folks were getting desperate, I guess they'd eat the pumpkins. And boy, I would kill to be there with my little cassette recorder that I taught Laura to use in 1978 to record the collective gagging and retching sounds when the people bit into those pumpkins and realized that they tasted nothing like a Dunkin' Donuts pumpkin spice Dunkachino latte jelly donut. Nothing at all. And more like a slimy raw potato, but only stringier with big seeds. I would laugh, of course, haha, but I'd probably be pretty hungry too, although... God knows why I'd ever be in the Dakotas at that time, except to maybe be paying homage to Laura's childhood home. But not if I knew the apocalypse was coming. I mean, I'd know and I'd have gotten out. I mean, we have the Internet now. There's no excuse for not knowing stuff like that, like the apocalypse is coming. It's not like it's 1976 or anything. So as I'm writing this episode this morning, an email pops up in my inbox from JetBlue. Now, I'm always looking for bargain flights to various places, so I open up the email, and the subject line, the subject line of the JetBlue email this very morning is, our seasonal fares are more popular than pumpkin spice. Ah! There it is again. See? It's pumpkin spice, not pumpkin. It makes me so mad. Those poor pumpkins. I'm really actually starting to feel like Linus sitting there all alone in the pumpkin patch, waiting, waiting, waiting for the great pumpkin, not the great pumpkin spice latte, not the great pumpkin spice Oreo, not the great pumpkin spice, nonfat, sugar-free yogurt parfait in a squeezy tube, the effing great pumpkin. 
himself or herself. Why? Why? Why can't we just accept things as they are? Why do we need to sweeten and flavor and falsify and foodinessize everything? Were we so traumatized by our winters on the prairie or our collective diasporic history, the fleeing of oppression in Europe or South America or wherever we've come from? Do we have such a great collective unconscious trauma that we need to turn our back on real food and put sugar over everything and sugarcoat every experience? I think we need to turn back the clock. I need, we need to return to our roots. I think Sarah Palin and her crowd have it all wrong. There is no war on Christmas. There's a war on real, real pumpkin, to be specific. We need to put the pumpkin back in pumpkin spice. Forget the Christ in Christmas. It's too late for all that, and I couldn't give a spiced crap about that one anyway. But putting the pumpkin back in pumpkin spice, that's a campaign I can fully get behind. So if you're looking for me this October, I won't be down here in the foodiness fallout shelter for at least the next few weeks, at least through Halloween. I'm going to be out in the pumpkin patch with Linus, who I kind of always had a little crush on anyway, because I sort of like that loner intellectual type and we'll find a way to put that blanket to good use. And Laura and Almanzo, they're going to be out here too with us with a pail of milk, feeding the pumpkins and sneaking off to steal a few chaste colonial gropes through her petticoats and the flannel long underwear. We'll let those kids have their fun because, you know, they're all going to die of typhoid at the end anyway. So in the meantime, if you don't want to eat pumpkin-flavored shit and you really care about the real and you want to put the pumpkin back in pumpkin spice and you couldn't really give a spice damn about Christ and Christmas, keep on listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and food here on Heritage Radio Network. Yeah, network with me, Erica Wise. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. You can find the show on Facebook at Let's Get Real. Check out my website, letsgetrealshow.com. Also, I'm on the Huffington Post, so you should read my funny column for the Huffington Post, too. You'll find it quite amusing. Thanks to Jack in the Control Room. Thanks to Ben Kaplan, who wrote my theme music. Thanks to Linus for sharing his blanket with me. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.